hello, this is Rebecca Radio and Maggie Bacella. And this is Does It Get the Pass? A podcast where we arbitrarily decide whether rom-coms get the pass. This week, we're deciding whether or not the 1990 film and rom-com classic Pretty Woman by director extraordinaire Gary Marshall gets the pass. This film stars both Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, as well as Jason Alexander, Amy Yazbek, and Hector Elizondo. And our per letterbox description reads, when a millionaire wheeler dealer enters a business contract with a Holly- with Hollywood hooker Vivian Ward, he loses his heart in the bargain. Which is the weirdest way I've ever heard that film yeah. described. Like, I know that's exactly what it's about, but I feel like that lacks a lot of the nuance that other letterbox descriptions have. And like that, and it's underselling what is a five star rom com for the both of us, and also a five star rom com for like most people on this planet. To be fair, yeah, I mean, like I've always heard this rom com being talked about in the context of like, uh, like rags to riches and Cinderella stories. Yeah. So for the the review to not mention that like at all is actually kind of shocking. I would even say the tagline is a little bit offensive too. I to wonder sex if it's like. Because some of them, obviously the newer ones are written for the platform. I wonder if that was pulled from a trailer or a piece of like old PR because I can see it being like the opening line on a on a trailer for it. Like in the like because this came out in 1990. So like that was, you know, you had the the voiceover guy doing all the trailers in the 90s. And I can kind of hear him doing that. But I mean, that's getting into the sort of nitpicking of, of letterbox as a platform, which is not why we are here today. We are here to talk about the movie this was my first time watching this movie holy shit how had i never seen this movie before because it like it ticks all of the boxes for me it's funny because like last night when i was watching it in preparation for today's podcast i was like oh my god it fulfills maggie's rules of they don't kiss until the end yes and my love for like a reverse slow burn where they have sex first and then figure out the feelings later yeah so i was like this, I don't know how Pretty Woman did it, but it managed to combine both Maggie and I's, like, rom-com special interests in one. I think it was, I think the thing that did it was it doesn't have that problem that a lot of modern rom-coms do where sex equals love. Like, I feel like that's yeah. the, a lot of rom-coms equate sex with love. And since Vivian is a sex worker... That's not true. She makes that very clear from the beginning. And so by completely separating her romantic feelings from any sexual encounter she has, you can kind of have both in the end. And I think any story that involves a sex worker is going to sort of follow that kind of path. But yeah, I did appreciate that it was a they don't get to kiss until the end type of deal. It did feel very Cinderella in that sense. And I think like that's the the Cinderella kind of princess ideal of like a a romantic heroine does not happen much anymore which is I think why this is so special yeah I remember one of the last things I said to you last night was like they just don't make movies like this anymore and I think it's because we don't want to lean into like the fantasy princess damsel in distress kind of thing yeah I think that like there are some ways it can be done very very well and I think like in this movie especially like one thing about me, I'm always going to love a man defending his woman's honor. Yes. Um, and the scene that it happens in in this movie, he's kind of like evaded doing that throughout the whole movie. But when um his like lawyer slash business partner tries to assault Vivian, he's like, yeah. you do not get to fucking do that. Punches him, throws him out and fires him. And that shit, that was romantic as 
fuck to me as a teenager and it's still romantic as hell to me now like it's so yeah. good it's so yeah I think and like it, it also helps that they have incredible chemistry from the off it's not like he picks up a hooker on Hollywood Boulevard or whatever and like decides to have sex with her it's this he's he's so awkward about it and it's so kind of charming and endearing that that entire first interaction between him and Vivian in the car when she's like kind of making fun of him for not being able to drive the sports car that he has yeah. from his lawyer like that's incredibly endearing and the line that gets me and I put this in my review is when they're talking about how much he's going to Edward is going to pay Vivian for the week to be kind of an escort with him and they haggle and they land on some number and she says, I would have done it for 2000 And because her initial offer was 4000 And Edward looks at her and goes, I would have paid four. And I was like, we're 15 minutes into this movie and I am already fucking feral. It's like, um, oh my God, like moments. Okay, so I think I said this the last time we recorded, but like, I really like sex worker romances a lot because mm-hmm. it plays with our ideas of like, what's romance, what's sex, what's intimacy and things like that. And that yeah. conversation, I totally forgot that conversation happened until yeah. I saw your review. Because like one of my, like I was talking about kind of like an AU with a friend, um, friend uh-huh. of the pod, Eddie, if you're listening, um, this is about you. Uh, we were talking about like a sex worker romance. And I had mentioned like that one of my favorite tropes is when the sex worker says like, you wouldn't have to pay or you yeah. wouldn't have to pay like this much money. And I forgot that like my love for that trope in sex worker romances comes from pretty woman because of the whole like I would have accepted two I would have paid four thousand like yeah. oh it's so fucking good yeah and I think people say that like you know this film's anti-feminist because it's about a sex is worker it? or like they you know they have problems with the way the sex worker thing is handled and I'm like I think the kind of Cinderellification of this story uh does kind of help its portrayal of sex workers in that you know it doesn't Obviously, it's a key part of the story, but it ultimately doesn't matter. You know, she's treated like any other kind of human being. You know, it's sex being a sex worker really only comes into play when you get the skeezy lawyer, you know, brought into it. it you know, it's never been this sort of issue for for Edward. It's always been looking at her as a person and going like and making it a business deal, essentially, and, and not in a way that like I'm going to pay you for, you know, sexual interactions, that kind of thing. And I know originally... um, I read in that from Hollywood with Love book that we've discussed a couple times on this podcast before. The, the this script started out a hell of a lot darker than it ended up being. Like there was a lot more to do with uh, drugs and the kind of uh, you know the kind of class issues with being a sex worker in LA in the '90s and that kind of thing. And it ended up being a lot more depressing. And when I read that, I didn't I hadn't seen the film, so that kind of didn't really matter to me. But watching it now, I'm like. No, I'm happy that Gary Marshall said we need to make this happy or Disney because I believe this was a touchstone film uh, that like whatever production company said we need to make this happier because I mean, I'm not I'm not going into a romantic comedy for any sort of significant drama. I mean, there is plenty of drama in this film, um, but I'm not going in, you know, for it to be an iron claw type of situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've always felt like as a writer and as like someone who consumes a lot of text, it's like I want drama and I want serious drama because like that's what gets me invested in a narrative, even a Mm rom-com. Like I always find that the moments of a rom-com I like the most are the third act fights or like what's the thing that's like preventing them from confessing their feelings to each other 
or being open with their relationship. Those are the things that always interest me the most about a rom-com. Yeah. But this one, I feel like the stakes are generally high enough from the get-go yeah. that like it's 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 realistic enough for me. You know yeah. what I mean by that? And the it's- thing is, I can easily see this being a very, very dark story, but I'm glad that for the rom-com and the Cinderellification of it all, it works. And it's like, I'm a really big Made in Manhattan fan and Made mm-hmm. in Manhattan gets called a Cinderella story all the time. Mm-hmm. But Made in Manhattan feels way too rooted in reality. Yeah. To be like a true Cinderella story, which is a fairy tale because like all of these like instances happen that are out of her control to give her a happy ending. In Made in Manhattan, she has to fight a little bit too much for her happy yeah for her happy ending and one of the things that I loved the most in this rewatch was um Richard Gere's character uh what's his name Edward Lewis he asks Vivian like um what do you want out of a relationship and she's all like I want the movie ending I want the prince charming I had this dream when I was a kid where I was a princess and I was gonna get saved by the prince from the dragon yeah and Edward does that for her yeah, they make it very clear that, you know, this is rooted in fairy tale. This is rooted in very classic storytelling technique. And if that makes that a little, you know, less dramatic and a little less tension filled, fine. But they're, yeah, they're establishing that from the get go. They are putting it in the framework of the story that Vivian wants this sort of fairy tale happy ending. And it does make the sort of when you finally get a fairy tale happy ending, it feels earned in that sense because Edward listened to her and you know processed that that's what she wanted and put out put in that effort to give her that happy ending quite literally to the point where he rolls up to her apartment building and climbs the fire escape even though he's afraid of heights because she said she wanted a prince to come you know rescue her from the tower and I feel like that combined with the fact that the kind of central conflict in this film is not so much between Vivian and Edward it's more about kind of a class narrative. It's more about kind of Vivian trying to figure out how to function in on a class level that she has no understanding of. Not that she can't do it, but there is a very clear distinction in 1990s Los Angeles between people who had money and between people who are working class and her kind of attempts to figure that out. That's where the sort of conflict comes in because you see at the beginning of, of what would eventually become the very classic makeover montage where Edward gives her his like black card essentially and says, go buy yourself nice clothes to for dinner. And she goes into a store and no one will serve her. That's kind of, that scene for me is one of the kind of key points of this movie is not necessarily like all of the romance is great, but yeah, there is also that very clear kind of subdivision of Vivian having to sort of deal with how people see lower class working women and how she can kind of like navigate that and and find a place for herself within that if she wants to be with Edward. Yeah, I it's weird to say that the romance feels incidental in this plot because mm-hmm. it's so clearly a class narrative. Like from the get-go we're talking about like someone who's literally like 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 you like selling their body like as a form of capitalism and everything like yeah to survive yeah and then like someone who's buying up companies and selling them off piece by piece in a very objectified way like this this honestly doesn't feel like a romance to me it feels very much like something that like a grad student in like communist like philosophy made up you know what I mean because like the roman the romantic moments they're great they're really really exciting mm-hmm. they're amazing to watch like i think about the um 
scene where she comes down wearing the red dress for the opera and yeah. he flies her to San Francisco and he tells her about like some people they like opera from the get-go and some they don't like it at all or they learn to appreciate it but if you don't appreciate it from the get-go you'll never have like you'll never know what like beauty is and I was like damn that's romantic as fuck yeah. he's telling her this and he's bringing to her bringing her to an opera about uh, um, a sex worker who dies because her lover doesn't take care of her. It's La Traviata, La Traviata. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's La Traviata, um, which is my favorite opera. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's like I was saying earlier, though, like the sex work feels incidental yeah. and the romance feels incidental to this larger class narrative. <laughs> so I don't know, like it feels, I don't know, maybe that's what makes it so fulfilling in the end. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it again, it's doing that fairy tale thing of, you know, both Vivian and Edward are becoming better people, not just for the other person, but because of them, you know, they're both learning lessons kind of in, you know, their respective directions. And I feel like that's a thing that has been a little bit lost with modern rom-coms is that, you know, it, to save the princess, yes, the prince has to change, the prince has to sort of buck up that bravery and i think that's a thing that, and clean his room and, and clean his damn room yeah <laughs> exactly like there's i i feel like that's a a kind of tenant and a, and a pillar of of like specifically 90s rom-coms that we've lost in that general sense because a lot of you know rom-coms now just comes down to like do these people look hot together and do they have chemistry and of course chemistry is a very important thing but i think beyond just two actors having chemistry you have to have two characters that are really believable, not just on a romance level, but on a storytelling level in that sense. And again, framing it with that narrative of fairy tales, which is a very classic story structure that is really hard to fuck up if you do it right, gives them that advantage. And that means they can kind of move in and out of other things and not necessarily have to have the romance be completely front and center. You know, it can be because fairy tales are, are just as much about you know, princesses politics. learning their own value and yeah. politics and all of these other things as they are about, you know, the happy romantic ending. And I think that especially combined with the sort of sex work and the capitalism narratives in this makes for a really great story when you combine it with the fact that Richard Gere and Julia Roberts could set a fucking house on fire with how much chemistry they have. I was going to say... Um, one of the things that I totally forgot, because I I love this movie. I also haven't seen it since high school. So I was coming into it with like the nostalgia blinders. Mm -hmm. And I had a moment um, where like, like kind of context, like one of my favorite movies in high school was The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner and Whitney mm -hmm. Houston. And I hadn't seen it for a really long time. And then like friend of the pod, Livy watched it and I tried to watch it. And I was like, oh my God, this movie is so bad. And then, like, last summer, I saw it on the big screen for the first time in 35 millimeter with a couple of glasses of wine. And I was like, you know what? No, this movie is so good and I love it. And I can't believe I ever talked shit on this movie. <laughs> and it is that movie also is kind of like a fairy tale. It doesn't oh, have yeah. a happy ending, but it's very, like, fairy tale in the way it's set up and structured. Yeah. This is all to say that, like, I was worried going into this like adult, like my first adult rewatch of Pretty Woman, I was going to be disenchanted yeah. with everything going on. But no, I wasn't. And I think it's because of the fact that their chemistry is so strong. And what I forgot from the my first watching is that like 
she tells the hotel manager um who is in princess diaries as the like chief of staff or whatever yes she's his niece yeah that yeah. was really interesting to me i i think really interesting that, i think the reason that works is because hector elizondo doesn't believe it for a second like he knows what she is yeah but he is choosing to go along with it and treat her with respect because she is a human being and you know he doesn't like yes he has a job yes he has duties but this girl isn't necessarily doing anything wrong i did think that was an interesting choice and i think if you made that movie now maybe they would play up the comedy of that a bit more um probably but i think that says something about the way movies are made now like movies now wouldn't want to deal with the sex worker conversation and they don't necessarily deal with it very straightforwardly with uh you know with Vivian and uh the hotel manager but it's there in the subtext you know it's it's there yeah. in the way it's there very specifically in the way that Hector Elizondo delivers his lines and to and still chooses to treat her with respect because this film is all about the choices that we choose to make because you know the whole ending of the movie is Edward deciding that he doesn't want to be this kind of capitalist overlord that just takes companies and breaks them down bit by bit and and chooses to sort of walk away from that. Hector Elizondo's character chooses to treat Vivian with respect. Vivian chooses to do all of these things and go with him, even though it means potentially potential embarrassment and potentially worse things happening with people who are in a higher class of, of you know, social strata and look down on her. It's all about, and I think a lot of rom-coms come down to like, this is about the choices that we make, but especially here and now. And I, I think, again, it's all about like all of the choices made in this movie could have gone wrong and could have turned the sex worker storyline completely sour for me, but they kind of never did. And I think that's a credit partially also to Gary Marshall, because if you oh, look yeah. at his uh, kind of all of the things that he directed in his time, I mean, he directed both Princess Diaries movies. So I think it's very obvious that he wants to lean into this like fairy tale concept and this idea that people can be good and that we can make the right choices if we're given the time and given the you know motivation to really think things through that being said i did completely forget until i was just looking at this that, that gary marshall did also direct princess diaries and i'm realizing that that's probably why hector elizondo was in those movies but i still yeah. look at him and i still see joe from princess diaries so that was that was a fun little like easter egg for me personally I was gonna say oh there's also the waiter at the um restaurant with the escargot yes. that it happens every time or it happens all the time he's in both of the princess diaries movies and he says that to um yeah, yeah. slash Anne Hathaway but um the thing that I was gonna mention is I think that the reason why Hector Elizondo's character and Vivian get along so well mm -hmm. is at the end of the day because this is a class narrative and they're both working class yes Exactly. Like, and it it kind of, it's that kind of working class solidarity because like, yes, yeah, Hector absolutely. Elizondo could choose to be a complete piece of shit, but at the end of the day, they're two people doing their jobs and they're really not all that different jobs when it comes down to what they're doing, you know? And yeah, like service and hospitality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, just like... two very different ends of the same spectrum. Exactly. And I think that's what... And ultimately why I think that the makeover montage in this movie feels so fucking good. Because, I mean, makeover montages in movies for me are, you know, top tier. Gary Marshall did one of my absolute favorites with Mia's makeover in Princess Diaries. You know, they're, they're very, very much a kind of staple of this genre. But because this one starts with Vivian attempting to do it on her own and she can't and to have not only Hector Elizondo's character but also Edward kind of step in for her not in a way of like 
I'm a man, listen to me, but in this kind of chivalrous way of like, I see you're not, you're having trouble with this or, or you're in need. I'm, I'm going to help you. Like the bit, the bit when Hector Elizondo calls the women's department store, I love, but then Edward with her in the dress shop, like going, no, you, I'm going to spend a stupid amount of money in here. So you're going to do whatever the fuck she wants. That was sexy as hell to me. I'm so it sorry. It was so good, right? Like I, I knew like that, I knew that you were going to love that scene. Cause it's like, I think the phrase that he uses, like, we're going to spend an obscene amount of money here. Yes. And then one of the um, workers is all like, so are we talking about like reasonably like um, immoral or like, absolutely obscene he's like absolutely obscene and I was like yes bitch I'm eating it up but like I think that there's also um while some might say that this is a capitalist fantasy sure I get it but it's also like sometimes when you're super broke it like it's nice to have someone want to take care of you and not care about the fact that you don't have a lot of money exactly yeah like at at no it's nice to hear that yeah at no point in this narrative does Edward ever give a shit not only about what Vivian does, but the fact that she, like, got in his car because she needed to make rent. That's how poor she is. Like, that's, he, yeah. at no point, like, he he has conversations with her about it, but it's clearly just because he's interested in, you know, where she comes from and why she does what she does and her motivations as a person, which is not the kind of conversation you get in everyday rom-coms. I mean, they have very, very candid conversations about what she does for work because that's where the whole I don't kiss on the mouth conversation comes from and why that when they do kiss later on it's so fucking satisfying but yeah that it's completely like at no point is there ever sort of any judgment on his part and I think I said this or like I wrote this when I was initially uh watching this movie this is what the TikTok girlies want their billionaire romances to be, but it can they can never hit this mark. That is, ex- this is yes. exactly what they want. They want the kind of like you know, kind of aloof, but also very caring billionaire, and it always just comes across as abusive. <laughs> well, the Fifty Shades of Grey vacation of like the billionaire romance genre or the millionaire romance genre has like made things really bad. Like because I think that like too often now we conflate like that like financial prestige and that like upper classness and elitism with control and there is a sense of control there but like before 50 shades of gray it wasn't necessarily seen as sexual control at least inherently and i think that like we want too much of the 50 shades of gray like the oh he has more money than me he has a higher class than me he has more power than me that's alluring and that's sexy for some people, that's okay. That is totally okay. If, like, that's what you're into, then, you know, that's what you're into. But the problem is, is that all of these, like, class difference romances yeah. are like the Fifty Shades of Grey, and not enough of them are also invoking the pretty woman aspect of this. Yeah. Because it's not like he says, oh, I want you to buy this outfit and look like yeah. this. He just said, you have to look nice yeah so that we can go to dinner or that we can go to the polo or that we can go to the opera it's not like he he's not controlling what she looks like yeah he's teaching her also how to code switch a little bit exactly he's helping her to blend in not because he's embarrassed of her but because he wants her to feel confident in herself yeah and that's extremely important is that he is not doing this to like 
and there at no point is he trying to sort of pass her off as something better. This is not a Pygmalion kind of situation. It's very much just- I was just, thinking of My Fair Lady the entire time watching this. Yes, yeah. It's very much just, I want you to be comfortable as you are and we'll we'll, we'll work out the kind of kinks as we go because there's the the bit, the first dinner that he goes to with that, uh, with the, the guy whose company he's the trying CEO, to buy. The CEO, yeah. She kind of makes a fool of herself and at no point is he embarrassed. He's just like, oh no, you just, you do this, you do this, you do, like, it's, he's way more patient than any other like, millionaire romance male lead i've ever seen like he's very quiet and reserved and i think a lot of times when you get those like billionaire romances that turns into like cruelty for some reason yeah like the, the domineering the, the controlling like i'm just thinking of christian gray yeah exactly i feel like yeah yeah i mean i know i was gonna say like 50 shades of gray gray probably took notes from this but like i know how 50 shades of gray started i know I know the origin. I know the truth. Of that. I know you were Twilight fanfiction once upon a time. Like exactly. Like, and I'm sure there were elements of Pretty Woman, but yeah, I feel like Fifty Shades of Grey has really kind of corrupted that. And I do. And to be fair, I do feel like Pretty Woman is kind of lightning in a bottle as well. Not necessarily oh, for Gary Marshall, but just as a rom com. Because even if you look at other films that came out contemporary to this. There is nothing else like this on the market. Richard Gere and Julia Roberts have done other rom-coms together. None of them, none of them are anything like this. And no other Julia Roberts rom-com is like this. Like, this is 100% like complete lightning in a bottle. You will never be able to do a movie like this again. And I think that's part of why I like it so much is that it is kind of yeah. a marker of a, of a bygone era. And it's also one of the few, not just rom-coms, but movies in general where I think the sex scenes are actually hot. Like, that don't feel unbearably cringy and unnecessary to the plot. Like, I like I have no problem with sex scenes in general. I'm not a prude. I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. But from a personal standpoint, I always feel like in contemporary film, they're written in just to have, like, a sexy moment. But I, when I fucking tell you that the, the scene in the hotel, like, lounge... Where oh, he's playing the piano. Yes. Oh my god. Holy get, don't fuck. get me started. Do not get me started. Oh my like, god. Like the the lead into that and like the how natural that felt and the fact that it was not necessarily even played as a sex scene. It was just oh my. I've been thinking about it for the entirety of the ten days since I watched this movie. <laughs> Every single fucking day. I think in the scene, he also, like, kind of presses her down, like, with just yes! one hand. And I was, like, I remember, like, teenage me. Like, I've been a lesbian my whole life. But I was, like, oh, my God. It's crazy. And the way the, the lead up into that scene is so sexy. He's all, like, oh, can we have the room, gentlemen? And everyone leaves. And she's, all like, oh, yeah. so you're able to tell people to do what they want? And he's, all, like, I don't know, I guess. And then... Like, he doesn't have to tell her to do what he wants. And she just kind of follows his lead. And I know she's getting paid, but I was like, girl, you get your money? Yeah, like, oh exactly. Like, and maybe it's just because the, the sex scenes in this film are also fade to black sex scenes, which I do tend to prefer yeah. because I think it it preserves the, like, the sexiness and the, the impact of the moment. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if it was the chemistry. I don't know if it was just the, like, context of that scene. But holy fucking shit like i have no words i i don't think i can be coherent about my no, feelings about that what? scene i was thinking i was like what was the other movie where i was going feral over the sex scenes for and it was love bites 
<laughs> because like of the moment when he like licked her and I was like yes. that's so weird but it was also kind of hot like yeah no I, I feel the same way about the sex scenes in Pretty Woman because like you'd think like okay so if this movie were made today I think that they would really play up the sex worker aspect of it just because we're more aware about like the discourse yeah. around sex workers now than we were like 30 years ago, which is a crazy thing to say. Yeah. Um, because this movie is what, like 35 years old. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but I feel like it would look at the sex scenes more, maybe in a more clinical way, perhaps just because yeah. of like the post me too movement and everything. Yeah. Um, but if they were sexual, they probably look more like euphoria sex scenes. That's just a speculation and not a judgment yeah. call. Uh-huh. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that like, like what this movie is doing with its sex scenes is really interesting mm-hmm. because like it, you'd think that in a movie about a sex worker, it would be a lot of sex scenes or there would be like really played up and that's what we would remember about them but really the the mo the sex scene that we remember is the piano one that's the one I've always heard talked about like yeah. in discourse around this movie because it is the intimate one it's the first one yeah they don't show them having sex on the first night they're together it's not until like 45 minutes into this two-hour movie yeah that we see them have sex which is really really different than what you'd expect from a sex worker romance and I think that that's what makes this movie so good it yeah. subverts your expectations of what a sex worker romance looked like, at least for the 90s. Yeah, at least for the 90s. I- I'm sorry. I'm getting really caught up on the fact that you just fucking equated love bites and pretty woman. Like, that's just, my brain is, like, melting on my ears. At the, like, I knew you're Once correct. Again, you I are objectively correct. I do not love bite slander on no, this okay. podcast. I, I'm the one that brought love bites to this podcast, so I feel the need to defend myself. I fucking love that movie, but I do, by and large, like, never expect people to be kind of positive about it just because it is a very low-budget thing. And I I am a film critic, and people are stupid and rude about low-budget B-movie stuff. So, like, every time you are happy about Love Fights and every time you give it a compliment is a very positive thing for me. It's just very funny for me to see this low-budget rom-com with Adam Ant and Pretty Woman, which is arguably top five greatest rom-com of all time, like, equated in the same Big words for Maggie! <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I'm cynical because I'm a fucking film critic, and, like, nobody wants to be nice about movies, so to hear people talk about my silly little Blorbo vampire movie that I'm getting a tattoo for in three days is, like... You are? Yes. Oh my god. Big news for the podcast. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going on to what uh Katie, friend of the pod, Katie and I have dubbed my husband's sleeve. <laughs> That's perfect. I literally can't wait to see it, by the way. Um but no, I mean like I think it's funny that we talked about Twilight and then talked about Pretty Woman and then talked about Love, Love Bites, Bites because we all know that my theory that like Stephanie Meyer watched Love Bites and went, I can do that too. <laughs> so like, yeah. Love Bites Maybe, is the genesis okay. of the vampire rom-com trope. That's, I'm going to oh, say absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. I do, um, I do want to talk about the past just a little bit. Yes. Um, first of all, I think this movie gets the pass. There's no infidelity. The first scene makes it clear that he is not with his partner anymore. Yeah. She's obviously a sex worker. This is her job. She's not shown with a romantic partner. Yeah. Um, so she's not cheating. Yeah. He's not cheating. So- Number one, we're done. Cool. But yeah. also, like, there's no pretense to their relationship. And I think that's what I like. 
I think that this could have gone a very, very different way. Like I'm watching or rewatching season two of White Lotus right now. Uh-huh. And um, the son of the two, like Murray Abrams. Yeah. F. Murray Abrams. Yeah. And uh, Tom Hollander's uh, like their like kid or whatever. Um, He, his like first time having sex, I think in just the show, I don't know, but whatever. He doesn't know that they're prostitutes. Oh, and it's, like, a little weird. Like, he just thinks they're coming on to him. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think that this could have gone very, very differently where, like, Vivian could have been hiding from um, Edward that she was a sex worker, but she doesn't. Yeah. Like, the, it makes, like you said earlier, they make it a point to talk about the fact that this is a business relationship throughout yeah. the entire movie. So, like, there's no pretense. Yeah, and exactly. They're yeah. not lying. They're just miscommunicating because they're idiots. Um, exactly. And that's the kind of lying to yeah. each other to get something else out of the other person. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it get the past. Would you agree or disagree? I think I'd agree because I think there is a certain amount of miscommunication that is kind of inherent to most rom-coms like the idea that like they're both too obtuse to realize that they're in love with each other like that's the kind of thing that you want out of a rom-com what you don't want is intentional lying you know or like very intentionally like you would say hiding something that is key to someone's personality to their life and Vivian being a sex worker is one of those things and I think the reason like I mean the setup of this movie is very clearly playing on a trope or an idea or a visual that would have been very common in the 90s in specifically Los Angeles on Hollywood Boulevard. Because if you watch uh, Valley Girl, which is a film we've covered on this podcast, the scene where Nicolas Cage is driving Deborah Foreman through Los Angeles, there are very clearly sex workers on the sidewalk who are calling out to them who are trying to get work like that is a very clear visual and that is a visual that is very very heavily associated with hollywood boulevard from about the 1970s to through to i would say like the late 90s yeah that was not uncommon and i feel like that was the way like they knew as filmmakers if we commute if we use this visual people are going to understand exactly what the setup is here i feel like if they had done anything else and made it less obvious than maybe there could have, you know, Edward could have misconstrued something. But the idea that he is driving down Hollywood Boulevard in the evening on, I believe, a Saturday night when that would have been when sex workers were out looking for work. You know, that's there was no way to sort of misconstrue that. And I do. Yeah, I have a feeling, again, if you remade this movie now that maybe the sex worker aspect would be hidden. And that's a problem, not only because it means it doesn't get the pass, but by doing that, it devalues the idea of being a sex worker. Because again, at no point, like Edward has res- immediate respect for Vivian from moment one. Like there is no yeah. point where he devalues her for any reason, especially not because she's a sex worker. I mean, he understands what the deal is. And I mean, that's part of that's because he's a businessman. He's a capitalist. He knows how to make a deal. And that's what he does with Vivian. But yeah, at no point does he treat her with any respect, like disrespect for being a sex worker. And, you know, there, and, you know, that could be coded in a number of different ways, but yeah, there's the narrative sees no reason to hide it. So like, and why would you, you know, the the narrative is kind of fairly realistic in that sense. And I think like one of the other things I want to add to that is the fact that like the narrative doesn't see any reason to hide it, but it also doesn't see any reason to punish it. Exactly. Because like that scene at the end, where the lawyer comes in 
and tries to like make moves on her and not even hire her. He just mm-hmm. wants to have sex with her. Yeah. So not even by it, like he's violating her terms of consent. Mm-hmm. Um, And then like Edward comes in and beats him up and says, you don't get to talk to her like that and throws him out and cuts him off. Yeah. I would say that this movie is honestly more pro-sex work than anti-sex work. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like there's- Like she's not like a sex worker at the end of the movie and whatever. Okay. She was doing it for survival in the first place and now she doesn't have to do it for survival. Exactly. So it's, it's not like, like it's it's always framed as she had no other choice, but she's also not ashamed of it. And yeah, if she quits doing it because she's met someone that can provide for her needs, fine. And yeah, it is when I got to the end of the movie watching it, I was like, oh, so sexual assault is being very clearly framed as sexual assault and wrong. something yes. bad and yes. wrong and evil. And that is not something that I would have expected in a movie about a sex worker from 1990. Or in a 90s rom-com. Exactly. It is very, very clearly framing sexual assault and even just violating any term of consent as wrong and evil and bad and something to be punished. And yeah, that is leaps and fucking bounds ahead of a lot of other, not only 90s rom-coms, but rom-coms now. Because shockingly, post Me Too, we still have fucking trouble with that. Yeah, it's like, I watched this movie and I'm thinking like, wow, this was really ahead of its time. This was really doing a lot of things that like current rom-coms and rom-coms of its time just don't do. Yeah. And I can't help but think that it's because of this like sex worker aspect where consent and romance and intimacy and terms of agreement in relationships are the whole basis for the inter for the sexual interaction in the first place. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's and honestly, that's why I love sex worker romances so much because they force us to actually interrogate, discuss and confront what it is we mean when we say we're in relationships or when we yeah. say that we give consent or when we say that we're in love. Yeah. And like as an ace lesbian, those are things I already think about all the time because I have to code them along the different like normative heterosexual um romantic routes i already have to do that differently so i think that's why i like sex worker romances so much and think they add so much to the rom-com genre yeah but i wish that we would see more of them but i think it's just like you said this is a like a lightning in a bottle kind of movie and i don't think we're ever going to get a sex worker romance like this again yeah and i feel like that's also part of the reason why i like you know that they don't get to kiss until the end things because I feel like a lot of contemporary stories, and I equate a lot of this to romance novels because the trend now is Ugh. to always have a sex scene in your novel, whether it makes sense or not. I was reading an Emma retelling that turned the um, If I Loved You Less, I Could Talk About It More scene into a smut scene, and I wanted to throw the book out the window. No! But, like, I feel like the reason that I love, you know, they don't get to kiss until the end romances is because, yeah, you spend the entire book sort of working out terms of consent and and learning who the other person is as a human being, not just as a romantic partner. And I feel like this film especially does that by interrogating what would come after the first kiss first, you know, and that's not something that you can do in every story. You can't like you having sex first and figuring out the feelings later does not work for every sort of setup, but by interrogating those terms of consent, it does make when they finally kiss even more special because Vivian has very explicitly stated, I don't do this because it does for me equate something entirely different. Correct. And I think like, you know, it's not like out of the ordinary to fall for the people you work with. Yeah. 
So like, it's honestly, this is more of like an office romance than it is a sex yeah, romance exactly. at the end of the day, right? Yeah. They make it such a point that they're business partners and not lovers. Yeah. Like there's never any kind of misconstruing from either of them that this is a romantic thing until they set out very clear terms and conditions. And I'm like, I mean, we're making this sound very clinical and it could be if they hadn't done such a great job passing Julie Roberts and Richard Gere and giving them that time to like grow together as characters and as actors because i feel like a lot of this movie wouldn't work if they didn't uh movie between the two of them oh sorry you froze on me for a second oh shit (laughs) our our zoom is having some issues today y'all i'm so sorry but like yeah they have like i i feel like there's always a, a like they they get time to grow as like actors and characters here yeah i was like when i turned on the movie last night i was like oh my god this is two fucking hours long a movie does not need to be two fucking hours long if it's a rom-com but you know what i think that those extra like 15 30 minutes of them just getting to grow as characters and people really makes all the difference and i really liked the way they interacted with each other i don't know if any other actor could have done this though I i don't think so I mean, I was like, I know that my one of my favorite questions is like, if we were re- remaking this nowadays, who would we cast? Nobody. Nobody. You can't Nobody. do this movie again. You just can't. Well, it's too yeah. specific. Yeah. Because like, I, I feel like people don't want to tell the Cinderella romance. I don't think that the Cinderella romance even has social function anymore. No. Yeah. But it's nice to look back with nostalgia and yeah. say, like, this was actually really special. This is saying a lot of things. Like, and for its time, it was actually pretty radical and it's still pretty radical today. Yeah. But you, the movie, the movie that would be made today with the plot of Pretty Woman wouldn't even look like that original script. It would yeah. look so, so different. And I don't think it would be as magical. I don't think it would yeah. have the kind of star power that it has today. Like, the fact that there are like two pretty woman covers that are so well known, like the Def Leppard one and the Roy Orbison one. Are you, I think you're thinking of Van Halen, not Def Leppard. Oh, am I thinking? Oh, it's I am Van thinking Halen, of Van yeah. Halen. Sorry. Yeah. The fact that there are two versions of pretty woman that are so popular because of this movie. And the fact that like, we talk about the, the big mistake, big, huge, even huge, like yeah. that scene and the pirates of Penzance scene, like, like yes. those, like, there's a reason this movie is still talked about 34 years later. Yeah. We're never yeah. going to get another movie like this. And I don't want, I actually don't want another movie like yeah. this ever. This one is one that if you touch, I'm going to have problems. But that being said, I do want to go back to, you mentioned the music. I very desperately want to talk about the music in this movie because not only is there, you know, the the Roy Orbison version of Pretty Woman in addition to the Van Halen cover, which is, my preferred version of this my perfect yeah the mine too. other fucking songs in this movie bang like you would not believe i forgot the king of wishful thinking by go west was written for this movie and it plays yes. over the opening credits and i was like yes but also there's a really fucking sick um the 1990 remix of bowie's fame plays when she's in the bar looking for her her, her roommate and like just from then on it is just like banger after banger after banger like and not even specifically like 90s songs it's just so well soundtracked like especially the bit when vivian's singing kiss by prince like that's such a good thematic oh God, choice for her about. 
I was like, last night, I was like, oh my God, they've got all of Maggie and I's like guys in this movie. Yes. The thing about the soundtrack is that it doesn't feel 90s. It just feels like what someone in the 90s was listening to because like even today, like I'd be listening to stuff from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and stuff from high school and putting them all on the same playlists because I think they all have the same kind of emotional weight or musical value or whatever, right? And so like this playlist, the, the soundtrack for Pretty Woman just feels like what someone in the 90s listens to. Yeah, like it feels... It feels very specifically curated for a character like Vivian. Like the the song, yes. I had to look up the name, but um, when Vivian's going shopping, they're playing the song "Wild Women Do" by Natalie Cole. I'd never heard it, but I was like, "This is so this this feels so perfect for her as a person." Like just the the style of the song and the lyrics and everything. And and I listening to King of Wishful Thinking in context of Edward as a character, I was like, "Fuck off." This is so good. It's so, like, thematically, all of the music really fits, and sonically, all the music really fits. And that's a rarity now. You don't get curated jukebox soundtracks like this anymore. Like, you you, you very rarely get jukebox soundtracks to begin with that are, like, heavily featured in the film. Like, maybe they'll be in the background of a shot or something, but you don't get, you know, a movie where four or five or six different sequences have a very prominent like song playing in the background and I just I I love a good jukebox soundtrack and I feel like Pretty Woman like top five top five soundtrack for real no I absolutely agree like this movie makes me absolutely feral and crazy for a reason this is one of the stories where the music actually helps tell the story so it's a lot like a ballet in that way or like a musical in that way and it's not a shock to me that this became a Broadway stage musical Yeah, like a few years ago. I think it lends itself very much to that kind of genre and to that kind of storytelling as well, because the movie already uses music yeah. as a way to push the plot forward to develop these characters too. Um, I think about the Vivian kiss print scene. Yes, it's so All good. The fucking time. I also... love that scene. It is the best. It's my favorite scene from the movie probably. I'm looking at the, I'm looking, I I looked up the Pretty Woman musical because I totally forgot that was a thing. They didn't use any of the songs in the movie. They that, did not. That is shocking to me that they wouldn't at least get the title track. That they yeah. wouldn't get the Roy Orbison track or second best, King of Wishful Thinking, because like that's the song that when people talk about that, they're like, oh, that's the song from Pretty Woman. I, who wrote all of the music for this? I don't know. They but did you know get Brian what? Adams to write the music, though. So, I mean, you that's know cool. We did get the the rights to the music, though. Which one? Okay, it's another '90s movie, and it's another '90s movie where the music is so fundamental to the storytelling that if you don't have it, the the story loses meaning. American Psycho. I t- again show I totally forgot became a musical. Oh Let me, my! I need to look this up now. I'm not gonna go crazy because. American no, please, Psycho please is not crazy. a rom-com. Um, American Psycho does have sex workers, though, so it's kind of tangentially connected. <laughs> it's really, really. And it's from the 90s. But, like, that is a story where the music is absolutely needed yes. to tell the story. Yeah. And you want to know, and they do something really interesting with it. They make all of those pop songs that he was listening to uh-huh. into acapella numbers for the ensemble to do. Oh uh, yeah, because I'm looking at the the track list for the musical now, and they, yeah, they have like "Hip to Be Square" and uh, "In the Air Tonight" and all that stuff. And uh, that yeah, is my that's... favorite version of "In the Air Tonight." I mean, okay, m- 
any version of in the air tonight i will fuck with except for whatever the fuck they were trying to do with the or not the grammys the emmys last week where they had inexplicably when they were talking about miami vice travis barker playing that like you know the famous drum fill from that song it was very yeah, weird that was but we don't talk about that we're not gonna talk yeah, about gonna that go, but we don't talk about it like we're not talking about the emmys because then i'm gonna get filled with rage that they keep considering the bear a comedy and while i love the bear i on well, a rom-com uh, podcast i cannot call it a comedy Jeremy Allen White said like several months ago, he was like, I would love to do a rom-com, but it would have to be really sad. And I just sat there thinking, I'm sure this quote has been taken out of context, but my man, my man, that's not how they work. Like you can't, because it was basically implying that he wants to do a romantic tragedy. And I'm like, fine, go do that. It's, that's not a rom-com, my man. People want to yeah. see you and Io at a beer or a debris, that's how you say your last name. They want to yeah. see you two in like a rom-com, rom-com. Not whatever the fuck you have going on in the Iron Claw, which is clearly your MO. Yeah, no, like the thing is he's a romantic lead, but I feel like he's more suited to the romantic drama than the romantic comedy. <laughs> For now, sure. Who plays Richie again? Because he could do a rom-com. Even Moss like... Bacharach, my boy, Emmy winner Even Moss Bacharach, he absolutely should be in a rom-com. We're going to discuss this next week, like men we want in a rom-com. Yes. But yes, Emmy winner Even Moss Bacharach, please fucking put that man in a rom-com right now. Yeah, obviously we'll talk about this more next week and about all the men we want to see in rom-coms and everything. But um, I think that like, I mean, like, oh, just to bring it back to the, to the, to bring the plot back, one could say, <laughs> I think that the fact that this story is so like romantic and leans into the fantasy and the, the fairy taleism of it all, I think it's what makes this movie so good. Oh, like, yeah. that's kind of my thesis about what this movie is doing. I think that like, there's enough of the class elements that it actually feels radical. Yeah. It feels like it's saying something important. There's enough like emotional and dramatic weight to give it some substance. And it's not just yeah. fluff. It's yeah. actually saying something. And also the chemistry and the romance and the relationship is just so well written and so well acted that you just, you root for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 simple. This is this is a perfect rom com. Like I feel like this, if we did like star ratings on this, this would be kind of Five. one of the very few ten out of tens we're ever going to discuss on this podcast. Like I see almost no issue with this, and the issues I do have are very small, cosmetic. I'm a filmmaker, and I spend too much time watching movies types yeah. of things. Like this is this film. If you have not seen it, one. Applause for dealing with us for an hour as we've been recording this. But two, go. I th I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon right now. It's it's streaming somewhere. Yes. You can rent it. Go watch it. It will change your fucking life. Because I I I thought I had seen enough rom coms that it wasn't going to affect me that much. No, I watched this home alone while my family was at a hockey game. Lost my goddamn mind. And that very this, rarely happens when I watch movies anymore. This is the rom-com to end all rom-coms. I yes. think that this is one of the best movies ever made, probably. Correct. Correct. The, like, it's, like, it's easily one of the best comedies ever made and one of the best romances ever made, um, like, bar none. But yeah. I would say it's up there in the top 10 of, like, best movies ever made. Just because it understands the story it's trying to tell. Yeah. And it understands the complexities of the story it's trying to tell. Yes. Like, if, it, if you think it's hard in 2024 to tell a sex worker romance, imagine how they must have felt in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. And this movie and did the, fucking bank. So you have no so excuse. so good. 
It's so good. I'm literally, I feel like you need to have the play out be the Van Halen version of Pretty Woman. <laughs> yeah. I, if you've not, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, occasionally I will do that and put uh, relevant songs at the end of the podcast. So yeah, thank you for that idea. Cause that did not even occur to me. Uh, that probably wouldn't have occurred to me sitting in the edit tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, Honestly, I have nothing more to say about this movie. <laughs> like if we, if we keep going, I'm going to probably just keep talking about how much I love it. But yeah. like, you know, it gets the pass. It's so good. It is so amazing. I'm really glad you liked it. I was so nervous you were not going to like it. Because I remember when I took you to coffee last summer, I was like, oh, fuck. There's I too much that sex one too. She's not going to like it. Okay. I would like to make something very clear. I don't mind sex in film. I think it just has to be... Re- it, it has to make sense and be reasonable and not just be like these two people are gonna bone because you know we they're say hot. they should at this point and they're yeah. hot like that's the problem i have with the sex scene in anyone but you which was we we covered very recently um like i have i i don't mind sex in film if it is integrated properly and both coffee and and pretty woman are films that deal with with sex workers and i think do it in you know ways that are appropriate to their respective stories but yeah if i keep talking about this movie i am going to go fully feral um which i think y'all have probably heard enough of that as it is in the hour that we've been recording so if you want to <laughs> follow if you want to follow the pod on socials you can follow us on instagram twitter and tiktok at get the Passpod and on letterboxd at the Passpod. if you want to follow me on socials you can find me on instagram at maggie rachel underscore spelled r-a-c-h-a-e-l on twitter at maggie underscore rachel and on tiktok at maggie rachel if you'd like to follow me on socials, you can find me on Twitter at with a hero and on Instagram at King of the Chess People. And like we alluded to a little bit earlier, our Valentine's Day episode, which is going to be our next episode, um, is going to be a little bit more freeform. We're going to treat it more of like a special. Um, we're going to talk primarily about the men we want to see in rom coms, maybe ter- like um peripherally the women we want to see in rom-coms with them we're going to talk a little bit about the rom-com plots we'd like to see maybe some things we'd like to come back or be kick-started and then maybe a little bit about the future of rom-coms do you have anything to add yeah this will be a little bit of a culmination of a lot of the sort of ancillary things we've talked about on the podcast over the course of the last year um because i feel like if you're going to talk about rom-coms on valentine's day you have to be a little more all-encompassing than just a simple film Uh, But we do have a nice lineup of films coming after that. So stay tuned and we will see you next time.